I, I, you know, I, I. This is Winging It, the somewhat whimsical, certainly worrying, decidedly wonky, seldom weighty, endlessly well-intentioned, and wildly witty show about music, where one knows what's coming and the other doesn't. It happens in between both proper, usually, to ensure you can spend anywhere from 15 to 180 minutes with us every week. Who is us? Well, I'm Christina Baldwin, and we have... David, also known as Professor P. Soup, right across the way here. He has no idea what we're about to talk about, and neither do you. So, um, the big reveal is coming momentarily, but David, how are you feeling today? Are you feeling nervous? Are you feeling confident? Are you feeling concerned? Uh, it's always a beautiful day in uh, reality radio. <laughs> That's true. That is true. So, what will we be talking about today? Well, I'm glad you asked, or you didn't. We're going to talk about some rock songs that were written completely by accident. Interesting. Some of your favorite songs were an accident. I, I'm wondering how one writes a song by accident. That in itself is going to be pretty entertaining. It is going to be entertaining. And the first one that we're going to talk about is Whiter Shade of Pale hmm. by Procol Harum. So it's, it's very interesting. So let's talk about this a little bit. So... While A Whiter Shade of Pale sounds like it's been around since the beginning of time, the actual construction of the song came from the pianist screwing up his classical warm-ups. Going through the classic piece, Air on the G-String, Gary Booker talked about butchering the first few bars and not knowing where to go from there. He decided to just carry on and see where the music took him, using the opening chord as a kickoff point. He slowly turned the classic Bach piece into the great 60s anthem that we know today. Yeah, Whiter Shade of Pale Whoa. is uh, I, totally, I mean, there's almost no tweaking whatever done with box air on the G-string, and it's just, it's gorgeous. It's so airy the way it's played, yes. as it usually is. I mean, it's a fantastic piece. And uh, the the ever-so-enigmatic lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That's true. I don't, I think that the lyrics likely came, obviously, quite a bit later, um, it's interesting, though, because Booker almost denies that he even wrote the song. He feels that it was rather him in the right place at the right time um, and that anything could have happened. So he says it pays to learn from your influences. But in this case, getting halfway there may not be at all bad. Wow. So, you know, that's interesting. So sometimes, as you know, as somebody who composes music, I mean, and I'm I'm a lyricist. It could just it's just one line and then you just go right. Or it could be a note or a series of notes and then you don't know where you're going. And sometimes you're playing a song that you've been listening to your whole life and it takes you to that place. Yeah, and sometimes it's just a notion. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I was doing a song, and then there's a keyboard part. It's sort of like a Doors thing. Maybe why don't I do a Doors parody? And oh, and this one sounds a little bit like ACDC, this little chord progression at the end. Why don't I do an ACDC send-up? You know, mm -hmm. sometimes it's just like that that kind of shit. So Whiter Shade of Pale, though, is, uh, I mean, because it is such a, a beautiful Bach piece that I had known previously, and all those... Uh, I, I, it's brilliantly the vocal is great mm -hmm. it's a tremendous piece of music um, yeah, so I think it deserves its you know sort of iconic status and I wouldn't have thought of it as an accident even though it's I'm sure they were. He wasn't sitting there thinking, "What can I get from Bach and no. turn it into a pop song?" <laughs> That's right. That he leaves that to Eric Carmen, who <laughs> snatched two 
hit single melodies from Sergei Rachmaninoff and didn't give the man a fucking dime. Oh, okay. well, of he, was, he was dead. He's dead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Under um, suspicious circumstances. Of course. <laughs> of course. Oh, hopefully not possibly flayed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be really bad. All right. And f- up next, Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith. This was an accident. So even when working in the studio, you always have those days where things just aren't coming together, right? I mean, we all have that. You can try whatever idea of a song and hope that it works and you're not getting anything. Well, during the production of Toys in the Attic, producer Jack Douglas said that they needed another song that was, and was wondering if anyone had any spare riffs. Well, Joe Perry had one. Um, and Tom Hamilton uh, introduced the iconic bass riff, which turned into the basis for Sweet Emotion. The lyrics seem to be made up on the spot, too, with Steven Tyler taking inspiration for the resentment that he filled toward Perry's girlfriend at the time. Wow. Outside the main hook line, though, nothing really changes throughout the song, only moving to a different key to give it more of a Zeppelin feel in Tyler's own words. Yeah, and uh, a hella, hella lead guitar outro from Joe Perry on that one. Holy shit. Absolutely. You know? uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a nasty song, lyrically speaking, but I assume this is just a, just a story that he's telling us about this uh, low-life character and everything. It's just fun to listen to. It's a really kick-ass song. And the music, Tom Hamilton is actually behind a couple of their better songs. Uh, so, yeah, great, great work from both him and Steven Tyler on that. Absolutely. So, again, I can't imagine Sweet Emotion happening by accident, but it did. And a lot of things happen in just seconds when people are working on songs. You know, it, could, it can go from nothing to holy shit in a matter of seconds. So, Sweet Emotion is a great song. And I, you know, whether or not the lyrics are autobiographical, which I'm not sure they are, <laughs> I love a good, compelling lyric, whether it's a fantastical story or something that seems totally feasible. I really like it. So I like going wherever the story takes me. Unless it's love in an elevator. Then I'm yeah, fine. Well, you can't catch me because the rabbit done died. That's pretty mm, nasty that's, stuff. Well, I mean, there it goes. But, <laughs> there it goes. Well, it kicks ass, though, motherfucker. <laughs> it really does. It does kick ass. That's a great fucking song. So up next is Pour Some Sugar On Me by Def Leppard. Out of all the big budget productions to come out of 1980s Def Leppard's Hysteria is probably one of the most expensive albums ever. Going through it all, the lads from Sheffield endured grueling sessions, juggled different producers, and even lost their drummer's arm before they had the product they were satisfied with. So, as you can imagine, their main hit Pour Some Sugar On Me took an astonishing 15 minutes to create. On one of their last days recording, Joe Elliott was working on the vocals for Armageddon, when producer Mutt Lang decided to take a coffee break to clean the air. Having an acoustic guitar around, Elliot started to sing what is now the chorus for Sugar when Mutt returned and convinced him to turn it into a song. Wow. So that's quite something. Nice. And Mutt that Lang. is a huge song. Yeah, I got to tell you, these, some of these producers, I was thinking about this earlier today, uh, that the impact they have, I mean, even if they're not actually writing the songs as they do in some cases, like Bob Ezrin, but uh, even if they're not writing them, the impact they have... Uh, with their visions. Uh, oh, and, Mutt Lang is brilliant. Exactly. He yeah. really is. And, of course, he, look what he did. He was right with Pour Some Sugar on I Me. Mean, it, it was a big hit. And right, and Rick Rubin. Think, I mean, just think of what they do. They change yeah. everything. It's And it is. It's uh, understand. I mean, it's. I can believe it was recorded in 15 minutes because it is so loose. But it sounds, it's kind of flawless, too. So you wouldn't think it would be, you know, just some, you know, blah, blah, ragtag jam thing. But uh, it's very spontaneous and it's it, it's a cool track it's a cool ass track and um, 
it's a possibility that uh, there will be hearing more about Def Leppard soon. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'm i not sure that they recorded it in 15 minutes. I mean, it, the production of that song is crazy. I think they wrote it in 15 oh, minutes. Oh, wrote it in 15 minutes, though. Yeah, because I think the production is pretty rock solid on that song. It's very uh, slick and corporate. It's very nice. Um, not my favorite song by Def Leppard, but certainly one of the most popular and fun um, but, you know, that 15 minutes certainly yielded, I mean, I can't even imagine the amount of money they made off that song. So I guess the moral of the story is never under- underestimate the power of coffee, an acoustic guitar, and a good idea. Right, and, you know, your little, uh, so all you songwriters out there, who probably quite a few of you out there, you have your little pet, your little babies, your little <laughs> thing, little ugly redheaded stepchild you think everybody hates. That's right. Uh, that you love it, though. And, That's right, you uh, love it. Somebody out there comes along and says, hey, that's your next hit. That's right. Like Pete Townsend, there's an example right there. Talk about written by accident. It wasn't exactly written by accident, but Pinball Wizard, hmm. he wrote uh, to pander, you know, just to, to get the interest of some guy, a possible backer, you know, financial pr- promoter or something, uh, because he liked pinball, and he wrote that song, and he hmm. fucking hated it. And he brought it back to the band, and they played it, and they said, Pete, that's a hit. You know, they convinced him it was a real hit song, you know. And same thing with Def Leppard here. Oh, that little thing, yeah, yeah, do it. So good, good Go on you, it. Mutt Lang. Yeah, Mutt's a, Mutt's brilliant. So I'm glad that Mutt was around at that moment. Okay, so next up is Red Hot Chili Peppers with "Under the Bridge." Big, huge, monster fucking hit. Huge hit. I don't really understand why, but it was a huge hit. So, you know, every band has that one moment where they've reached the point of no return. It could be an album, a song, or a show, but nothing is going to be the same after the world hears it, and that's what happened with Under the Bridge. So, when recording the album Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Rick Rubin began looking for songs and decided to go to Kiedis' house for ideas. Looking through every single lyrical scrap they could find, Rubin came upon a little poem that Anthony wrote but never intended for the Chili's which became the first few lines of Under the Bridge. Not really feeling it would be right, Kiedis even advised him not to let the rest of the band hear it, thinking it would not have been right for them to make at the time. But once the band got a hold of it, they were in. So then was born Under the Bridge. I'm not a huge fan of them exactly, but it's a strong song. I I kind of understand the appeal of it. I think it was uh, well done. uh, And I love the story of how it came about. uh, Yeah, I love that. You're just looking through all the lyrics you have to try to find something that's salvageable. And I think I've told you this before. Whenever I write lyrics, usually I have to finish them at that moment or I never finish them again. I just don't. I don't go back. I have actually have a file called Awful Songs with Salvageable Lyrics. You know, oh just, <laughs> just like songs that are total crap, but there's like a line or two that can be rescued. That you like. Yeah, that you like. But, um, yeah, you do uh, things like that as a creative artist. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, and, you know, when you're trying to finish an album, that's like the worst. Like, you feel like I'm not quite done yet. I'm almost there. But then you're thinking, I need one more thing. And maybe you're not necessarily looking for a hit. I mean, I don't know that the Red Hot Chili Peppers were like, oh, we're going to find a hit. Or that Rick was like, oh, let's find a hit. He's just like, we're looking for something to finish the album. So it's interesting because I think that happens a lot. You're like, oh, we need one more of this kind of song. Or we need one more thing. And whether it's lyrics or somebody going back, like you said, and listening to little snippets of things they played and recorded. Which is why I am a huge advocate for people advocate 
advocate for people recording when they're just fucking around, when they're just, you know, warming up, when they're just playing stuff. You never know what you're going to get. And I keep every little bit of writing that I do, whether it's one line or like 16 lines, I just keep it. I may never do anything with it, or I may be inspired by it later. Usually not. In my case, it's in my phone. There's all these uh, audio files, you know. So it's like new riff, cool riff, punk riff, you know, <laughs> uh, questionable riff, you know. <laughs> questionable riff. But you keep it. Lame riff, you know. Because you never know <laughs> when you might want to use it, or it could inspire something great. Yeah. So, this might shock you. Bohemian Rhapsody. Hmm. Hmm. So the entire construction of Bohemian Rhapsody just seems to defy any standard definition of what a song is. I absolutely agree, and I fucking love this song for it. Where else are you going to find a rock song that goes from ballad territory to operatic sections to stadium rock in one go? Well, you're not going to find anything else. I mean, it's really a -a one-of-a-kind song. You're not going to find that in... in an entire career of You're not. a lot of bands. Yeah, yeah. There's no way, especially in one song, yeah. right? I mean, even though Queen had flirted with the prog rock skills in their early days, Bohemian Rhapsody was never supposed to exist the way it is today. When Freddie first started to put the tracks together for A Night at the Opera, the individual pieces were all meant to be separate songs to include on the record. And when it came to crunch time, he kind of seems to have thrown them all together. Though the initial concept might have been out of frustration, they did manage to move the moon and stars, of course, as we see in that movie, to get it where it is today, holding the record for one of the most expensive single songs ever created in the UK. Even if you have <laughs> even if you have no idea how Galileo plays into things, this brainchild of three different songs is what made Queen the musical superhumans you know them as today. And before we go on, I want to thank whatculture.com for this excellent article. So yeah. are you surprised by that? Uh, I, believe it or not, as a lifelong Queen fan, I actually had never heard that before. Um, I just thought it was that he set out to write this you know, sweeping epic thing and through the stadium arena rock and back a little bit of a reprise at the end. Uh, I would have assumed it was meant that way. No, I didn't know that. Uh, I know songwriters do their own little medleys like Lennon and McCartney, uh, Abbey Road, Side 2. Let's just right. throw a bunch of songs together. Or uh, Edgar Winter, who uh, composed uh, the huge hit Frankenstein by himself. It was He calls it Frankenstein because that's what he felt like, putting all these different parts of song of you know music bits that were just lying around. Yeah. And they seem like they belong every bit as much as Bohemian Rhapsody. For sure. So uh, accidents will happen, and uh, it's a good thing. Yeah, but this is, to your point, a little Frankenstein. I mean, putting all of yes. these together oh, yeah. in one song, you know, um, and then getting people to play it right because it's so unconventional it's so incredibly different to get people to play it and as you saw i mean their their label pushed back on them you know and eventually they got people to play it by you know saying oh you know this is mysterious this is forbidden you know you should play it and they did and then it was a huge hit and they would not have felt that way about uh, i'm in love with my car you know? no yeah. oh my god <laughs> no so it's very interesting, but he did it out of frustration. Well, more artists should be that frustrated because what a masterpiece, what a one-of-a-kind stroke of genius. Uh, so, yeah, so very interesting. I was shocked by that, too. So lifelong Queen fan, but had no idea. And I'll bet uh, Somebody to Love was deliberate because that's that obviously <laughs> sounds like it uh, was started from, you know, intended to be together from the start because it doesn't change all that much. It's like a straight gospel thing but it uh, is sort of the 
that uh, Day at the Races version of Bohemian Rhapsody, at least with that uh, sweet guitar solo in the middle. So, yeah, Freddie Mercury, just genius. What can I tell you? Absolutely. What can we say? Were there some that you think, because we're getting close to the end here, were there some that you think could be on this list? Well, um, The Eagles' Life in the Fast Lane Mm. was not really intended to be a song. Joe Walsh was just playing that rap. And just, they were getting ready to rehearse and everything, and he was just playing that, and like, whoa, wait, what the, what is that? What is that? What is that? Yes. Play that again. He said, just something I just made up today, and they started bump, 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 throwing in some drums and some bass, and uh, and it just kind of evolved very shortly as a, uh, as a big, big hit for the Eagles. And, I mean... Hotel California, I mean, Life in the Fast Lane is, I mean, it's yeah. one of the defining songs of the album, you know. For sure. And I think it's interesting that it's kind of sort of on accident. And that's why, you know, I always say, even if you don't think it's worth a piece of, worth shit, you know, you don't think it's good, just play it, especially if you're in a band, just play it because what if somebody else hears something in it? Mm. What if somebody else is moved by it? Even if they don't use it, what if the idea springboards something else? And again, this goes back to my original, very recent uh, suggestion to record everything, even when you're just fucking around because you never know oh, what yeah. is going to do to do it. I mean, I hear Bruce play on the piano all the time and I'm like, what was that? He's like, nothing. And I'm like, it needs to be something. What are you doing? And, you know, you think you're going to remember it. You're uh, no, you don't. You don't. Because no. you got a million pieces of music, no, you know, no. coming up in your head. So there's... You need to record it. Even then, you'll be going like, how in the hell did I play that? You yeah, know? now, we, exactly. Or <laughs> Where'd that come yeah, from? Where'd, where'd those that lyrics come from? Come from? Yeah. Exactly. All right. So this is the last one I'm going to talk about. But this one may be the most surprising to you, or maybe it won't be. Maybe you already know this as a fan of The Beatles. Perhaps you knew that yesterday was uh, written completely by accident. So out of all the rock classics of the 60s, Yesterday by the Beatles feels timeless, of course. I Mm. think so. And it's been covered by nearly everyone in the free world. Uh, Although it was released on Help album, the Help album, 1965, Mecca had this arrangement as far back as 1963, but didn't think it was truly his. Rather than sit at the piano and sort it out, McCartney said... That the tune for the song came to him in his sleep and drove him out of bed to create. Initially, Paul was even hesitating to show it to the rest of the band, thinking that he probably nicked the chords from one of the old jazz standards that his father used to play him. And that can happen, as we Mm. talked about earlier, too. But these were all his and going to become one of the most memorable musical phases of the 20th century. Like it or not, that was an amazing dream. So... Obviously, it was a complete accident. He woke up with it, had to get it out, and then almost didn't even show it to the band. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Yesterday is just one of those songs that just floors me every time. It's simple. It's beautiful. And it is absolutely timeless. Are you surprised? Yeah, actually. um, I only heard stories about uh, he didn't know what lyrics to put to it, and he was calling it scrambled eggs and stuff like that, you know. (laughs) Or something to that. Scrambled eggs. Yeah, I mean, that was a working thing just while he worked out the melody. But, I mean, there's so many progressions out there that have probably been repeated hundreds of times throughout history. And you made it up yourself, and uh, it happens to match something else, but it's sheer coincidence, you know. 
Yeah. Millions of people composing out there. They're going to come up with the same things. You know? Agreed. So uh, it was probably just an inspiration of his own. But uh, the fact that he almost sat on it and kept yes. it, uh, took it to the well, I almost said took it to the grave. He's not ah! even dead yet. Hard, hard to believe we're talking ah. about rock stars from the '60s who aren't dead. But, I you know. know, right? Um, yeah. And he's actually thriving. He continues oh, to yes, just be amazing. Yes, yeah. When I'm 64, when I was 64 <laughs> decades ago, yeah, you know? <laughs> when I was, that's right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So uh, interesting. But if you were to ask him where he got it, he would say he has no clue. Just came to him in a dream, once upon a dream. Well, that uh, brings us to the end of what I wanted to talk about today. Just some songs, not all, it's not exhaustive, but some songs that were written completely by accident. They didn't mean to, they weren't trying to, it wasn't supposed to, they didn't know it was going to happen. They almost sat on it, they almost didn't show anyone. Lyrics that were buried, melodies that may not have been shared, and it all came to be huge hits for these people. So, Moral of the story, again, is record everything you do, whether you're fucking around or not, whether it's a practice, record it, and fucking share it. <laughs> and, and listen to people who tell you, that is great. Yes, you know? definitely. It's like, uh, oh, this is a piece of crap. Everybody goes, no, 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 it's great. Believe them. You know? Unless it's, I'm in love with my car. Okay. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I love that song. It's uh, just, I don't. That's not, their, that's not a lead single. You know, Definitely yeah. not a lead single, and I don't love that song. But anyway... All right, well, I guess since we are at another, you know, we've brought another episode of Winging It to a close that only leaves for you to say, let's fly this coop. This has been Birds of a Feather on What the Flock Radio.